Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling Thomas C. Foster. Tom Foster is a New York Times bestselling author, most notably of classroom favorite How to Read Literature Like a Professor, which has sold over one million copies. For his next book, he tackles a subject that has intimidated students more than almost any other, poetry. In How to Read Poetry Like a Professor, Tom uses his uniquely engaging and entertaining style to take students through the ins and outs of poetry. We spoke with Tom about how the book came to be, some topics he covers in the book, and poetry as a whole. So joining us on the phone right now is Thomas Foster, author of How to Read Poetry Like a Professor. And Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure, Michael. All right. um, So start us off. um, Big, intimidating topic, obviously, poetry. um, And you devote a brief section of of the book to this. But what is poetry exactly? How would you define that? going to go right for the hard thing. (laughs) Um, Poetry is is literature uh, that is, I think, unique in its compression. Uh, That is to say, particularly lyric poetry. There are narrative poems, epic poems that are quite long. But when we talk about poetry, we usually mean uh, shorter lyric poetry. Uh, poetry is kind of like songs, and so it's it's very compressed. Uh, it therefore makes a lot of of demands of language and the way that the poet uses language. Um, and it's trying to achieve, uh, let's say, let's say it's trying to achieve big effects in small spaces. Mm-hmm. So those types of big effects. Um, how do you achieve effects like that through poetry? What is it about poetry that you don't necessarily get from prose? Uh, I think it's because poetry uh, strips away the non-essential parts of um, of narrative. Mm-hmm. Okay, it doesn't necessarily worry about telling a whole story. It tells a moment, um, and in doing that, it can focus right in on on the most essential thing. Um, and sometimes those most essential things aren't that big, uh, but they're big enough. Uh, William Carlos Williams, the American poet of the 20th century, um, has a little poem called This Is Just to Say, uh, which is really the speaker's apology for having eaten all the plums that were in the, um, uh, that were in the refrigerator. <laughs> uh, and he closes by saying they were so ripe and so delicious. Um, and, and we kind of know from the way he says that there's a little sort of almost defensiveness about it that that he he understands that he transgressed against the social order of the kitchen. <laughs> um, he went he went beyond what he could do. Now that's not a huge effect, but it's a big effect in terms of, of sort of interpersonal dynamics or can be. Mm-hmm. And you know that that sounds like a really fun poem, and there are many poems in the book that are fun, very insightful. Um, so it seems like a very great format. What is it about poetry that intimidates us so much, students and non-students alike? Well, uh, it is true that some poetry is difficult. 
mm. uh, and, and can be deliberately so. Um, traditionally, uh, poetry, and as is saying, in the, uh, the, the Renaissance through, well, yesterday, uh, it can be, but the, the poetry was written by elites, which is, say, educated people, uh, and during the Renaissance, those were mighty few, um, and it's written then for educated people. So there were lots of, uh, lots of classical illusions that the rest of us didn't get. Um, and and I, uh, I say this as someone whose ancestors were distinctly uh, non-elite. Um, we would have been excluded from a lot of the, a lot of the fancier poetry uh, of pretty much any moment of history that you care to name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that is part of it. There is, I mean, it, its reputation for difficulty is not entirely undeserved. And yet there's a great deal of poetry that is accessible, and that's where we want to start. We want to start with poetry that we can manage, that we can understand. Um, and then, you know, as we spread our wings, we can move towards things that, uh, that make other demands on us. Mm-hmm. So what made you choose to write about poetry? You've tackled um, the novel, literature in general, film. So why poetry now? Well, uh, <laughs> why poetry now? It, it, it took till now to... Um, uh, to get Harper Collins on board with it. It, 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 it's not inevitably um, a big seller. Um, when I wrote uh, How to Read Literature Like a Professor, which came out in 2003, um, you know, that's a broad field. Anybody who feels any connection with literature, and of course there are all kinds of students studying literature, and other, many others who studied it, enjoyed it in school, and, and went into something else. Um, they could all find a way in there. Um, and we went to novels next, and um, that was still very broad. Most people, when they think of literature that they actually read, mm-hmm. it's going to be novels. Okay, so that was sort of a, uh, an easy get. Uh, and then... I did, I did some other things, but I always wanted to do this poetry book because I would go into classrooms uh, uh, where How to Read Literature had been adopted, and I would ask them, well, what do you want to see next? And the, the students would always say some combination of movies uh, or popular culture, and the teachers would often say poetry. I could use help with poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I carried this back to my then editor, and... Um, uh, his response at the time was, I don't think there's really a big enough market. Um, and so what finally happened was um, uh, Harper was interested in the movie book, which became Reading the Silver Screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I broke away from the, uh, the how-to and like a professor uh, titling motif for that one. Um, and I said, okay, but it's going to be a two-book deal, and I don't even care if I get an advance on the second book. Um, but I really, really think we need to do this, this poetry, uh, how to read poetry like a professor, uh, for the teachers who've been really pretty loyal uh, customers mm-hmm. over the years of, of uh, how to read literature like a professor. And they said, well, I guess, okay. And, and eventually, you know, it took some negotiating and, we were going to do it uh, maybe strictly an e-book, maybe not, and then we decided we would do it as a, as a hard copy book, which was uh, my preference all along, um, and here we are. 
great. Well, we've got plenty of teachers excited for it, so we're looking forward to it. Um, so in terms of the book, how much of the content of it comes from discussions you've had with students, visiting classes, um, things like that? Um, I think most of it. I, um, I also have a really good memory, and one of the things mm-hmm. I have a good memory for is how little I understood about poetry coming out of high school. Um, we had read a few poems in high school. Um, and I uh, decided in my, uh, my second quarter uh, as an undergraduate that I was going to be an English major. Um, um, I didn't have any particular reason to think I would be excellent at it, but I, I, I decided I was going to do it anyway. And I made that decision in the only year that, um, that Dartmouth College had a two-quarter um, massive study of English literature with a huge four-hour exam at the end of the two terms, and it was about 90% poetry. Mm. Um, and I had to learn a lot. Fortunately, I had a, um, I had a great colleague uh, in that adventure. I had a, uh, a friend who had gone to um, an elite private school in, in Scotland um, who had spent, you know, years studying poetry in the, in the way that, uh, uh, that an Ivy League college wanted us to study it, and, and he really bailed me out. He, he taught me so many things about reading it. And, um, so I was able to, I, I've been able to hang on to that always. It never quite goes away that, um, oh yeah, I, there was a time when I really didn't get this and this was the part I wasn't getting. And this, you know, um, even simple things like uh, poetry is written in lines, but lines aren't the unit of meaning. Sentences are. Now you would think any dope could figure that out once he saw the, the first or second period in a poem. Uh, but it doesn't. It, I wasn't the dope who figured it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know that that was one of those things that I really needed to learn. How is how is meaning arranged, and how does the meaning and the the construction of sentences play with or against the formation of of individual lines of poetry? And and uh, you know so that's been that's been an ongoing adventure in part because the more poets you discover the more poets you find do things a little differently um you know it's not a one-size-fits-all um art um and i know art is uh but every poet brings a little something different to uh to how they how they construct poems and how they use lines if they even use lines because there are such things as prose poems Great. Um, so let's dive a little bit into the um, poems themselves. Um, so one thing that I was curious about in the book, um, at one point you mentioned um, vowel sounds and consonant sounds and how linking certain sounds or having certain sounds repeat throughout a poem can add meaning. Um, so how does that come about? Is it knowing what certain sounds evoke? Is it kind of just a feeling? How does that work? It's kind of a feeling. You know, if you stack up uh, say a series of hard consonants, uh, K's and, and hard G's, mm-hmm. um, you're going to get a, a kind of um, harsh or, or even drum beat, depending on what the, the rhythm is doing, what the meter is doing, effect from it. Um, whereas if it's lots of S's and Z's, um, there's, a, there's a sort of softness that comes uh, uh, from all that sibilance. 
uh, sibilance is one of my favorite words because it is it is what it describes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but you you get a different feeling, and that can be appropriate um, if you're writing a um, a poem about a military uh, confrontation, mm-hmm. for instance. You're probably not going to stack up a whole ton of S's and Z sounds. Um, it's just it's not going to work for you very well. Um, but a, you know a different subject, you may really want to do that. You know, if you're talking about the flow of water, then um, softer sounds, S's, Z's, uh, L's, and R's might be might be more in your wheelhouse. All right. Um, so in terms of meter, you devote um, a good section of the book to talking about that and all the rules for it. Um, and obviously, it's important for students to learn. But when it comes to actually reading a poem, breaking it down, how important is it to actually know those meter rules and to look at a poem and figure out what meter it's using? Um, I would put it down about third or fourth tier. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, obviously the first tier of reading is what are you um, what are you hearing happen what 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 is the poem saying uh, that's the first thing we really want to know if we don't know what a poem is saying we probably aren't going to care about all the rest of it um, and then we want to know um, how how the words that are being used are getting us where it's going um, and it's only in the next step or the one after that that we start saying okay now what kind of meter was going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, did it have a ba-bump, 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 or a bumpa, bumpa, bumpa kind of, or something else, uh, you know, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-dum. Uh, you know, there are, there are several different, basically four different regular meters that we see a lot, uh, which isn't that many to keep track of, um, and yet it's harder than, than one might think. But you don't need to worry about that until you're really digging in, you know, doing a sort of deep dive into the poem. Um, anybody who stops on the first reading of a poem and says, now what's the meter right here, um, is either missing the point or they're an English mm-hmm. professor trying to cut to the chase. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it seems like um, a lot of the examples throughout the book um, – you know, there are these meter rules, and it seems like a lot of the great poets are breaking them with purpose. So it almost seems like, in a way, these rules are made, made to be broken to sometimes evoke a greater meaning. Well, they are. Um, if you um, if you stick absolutely to uh, a regular meter, it will uh, it will wear out its welcome mm-hmm. very quickly, um, and so poets will. Uh, upend that. They'll reverse a metrical foot. Uh, uh, let's take the, the IM, which is the basic unit of, of, uh, uh, of meter. Uh, that's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Um, in uh, in his, his 73rd sonnet, Shakespeare says, that time of year thou mayest in me behold, and I emphasize it a little more than I would if I were just saying it, um, so we can hear the, the stress uh, on those second syllables. Uh, he does the same thing uh, in the second line, perfectly regular. Um, when yellow leaves or few or none do hang, third line same, upon the bow that shakes against the cold. And then just about the time we're thinking, okay, we can get comfortable with this, he takes out the unstressed syllables and we get... Uh, booming three hits in a row of stressed syllables, bare, ruined choirs. 
saying. And after he's done those three stress syllables, then he goes back to iams again. But in the meantime, we've gone, oh, wait a minute, I need to pay attention here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he changed up the effect, and, and uh, I believe he probably wanted us to notice that. Mm, that's great. Um, so I feel like we can't have a conversation about poetry without acknowledging um, music and song lyrics. Can you talk briefly about the um, relationship between poetry and song? Uh, sure. Uh, it's, it's as old as poetry mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's as, it's as current as right now um, we have uh, from the very earliest times of poetry much of it was song uh, the word lyric takes us to song uh, which is the term that we use for shorter poetry um, so that we have uh, many uh, many instances of poetry that were set to music or intended to be set to music um, in his plays, um, Shakespeare uh, will have, uh, especially his comedies and his, his magical plays, mm-hmm. he will have uh, not dialogue any longer, but often a, a little set piece for one of the characters. Um, in, uh, uh, in The Tempest, we're given um, uh, the, the young... Uh, uh, sort of heroic type is looking for his father after this shipwreck on on Prosperous Island, and he he receives this full fathom five. Thy father lies. Those are pearls that were his eyes, and it goes on in that vein somewhat. Well, that would have been set to music uh, in the original. He would have sung rather than spoken that. Um, uh, William Butler Yeats has a number who's one of the the truly great 20th century poets. Uh, has uh, a poem called Down by the Sally Gardens, which was intended as a song. In fact, he initially called it as his working title, uh, an old song um, renewed or an old song reheard or something along those lines. Um, And then uh, the great 20th century composer, Benjamin Britten, uh, set down by the Sally Gardens. It's just a little, you know, four-line poem. Uh, set it uh, to music uh, later on in, in the in the century. Uh, so it, you know, it's it carries forward to today. And of course, some of our um, uh, some of our best songwriters um, uh, are, you know, very much by way of being poets. We just had the experience of having a songwriter. Uh, win the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, as a uh, as a person who put words together uh, in in rhythm in, in Bob Dylan uh, in rhythm and rhyme. Um, uh, Paul Simon's another one. Uh, Tom Petty has some great uh, um, some great lyrics. I was just thinking yesterday about uh, his song "An American Girl," which tells this whole story beautifully and concisely. Um, in you know three minutes and thirty seconds, um, and that's with you know that's with a uh, an instrumental break. <laughs> so, uh, you can't you can't deny it. I know people read uh, Tupac's uh, lyrics as as poetry, you know, and they've been published. Uh, he says he had poetry published, so um, it's it's always that connection is always going to be there now this is not to say that every uh every song is a great poem mm-hmm. but 
Neither is every poem. That's true. <laughs> Uh, so, Tom, we just have one more question for you. Uh, this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Since this is primarily for uh, teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Wow. Um, <laughs> um, I had a lot of them. Um, uh, but I had a, a seventh grade teacher named Eleanor Pyers, who, um, and this would have been in 1960. 465, so I'm old, um, who really introduced us uh, to Robert Frost. Robert Frost had only died the year before, and she was a, a huge fan of Frost. And so we got uh, a healthy dose of, of Robert Frost. And I think uh, for some of his work, seventh grade is a really good time to encounter him. Mm -hmm. um, he's manageable. Uh, you can at least get the, the surface meaning. Uh, there's often two or three other things going on in, uh, uh, in a Frost poem, so you can't always trust the surface. Um, but for students who are just learning to read poetry, he's a good place to start. All right, fantastic. and it led you to where you are now. It did. <laughs> All right, well, Tom, thanks so much. It's been great. We're looking forward to the book coming out soon. All right, thanks a lot, Michael. No problem. Uh -huh. It was fun, bye. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.